On average, over 5,000 students at American universities are awarded PhDs in the humanities each year. Where is all this talent headed? What are these scholars doing? Welcome. You're listening to Careers in the Public Humanities, a podcast that explores the range of careers open to PhDs beyond the tenure track. Each episode, we'll interview a PhD who has put their degree to use in innovative ways within cultural institutions, in digital and media production, in state or federal agencies, and other literary and cultural publics, in hopes of inspiring other humanities PhDs to broaden the view of their career possibilities. This podcast is produced by English PhD students and alumni from the University of Rhode Island and has been made possible by Humanities at Large, a URI initiative funded by the National Endowment for the Humanities Next Generation PhD Grant Program. Hello and welcome. Thank you for joining us on Careers in the Public Humanities. I'm your host today, Ryan Engley, coming to you from the Sound Room and the Harrington Hub at the University of Rhode Island. Uh, I am delighted today to be joined by Dr. Elizabeth Francis, Executive Director of the Rhode Island Council for the Humanities. Thank you, Elizabeth. It's great to be here. Thanks, Ryan. Yeah. So I want to start today uh, talking, drawing from your work, past and present, and just begin with a simple question. How do you define public humanities work? I, I think of public humanities as ultimately a, a phrase that I, I hope that we can all, all drop public at some point. That's really interesting. That that is, that the humanities are understood fundamentally to be public. But the way that I think about it and how we think about it at the Humanities Council is both in terms of content and in terms of method. So the content of public humanities is very Mm wide-ranging, and we support through grants and initiatives and partnerships, we support a really wide variety of projects and and programs that could be anything from an, an after-school playwriting program mm-hmm. in uh, a neighborhood in Providence that encourages kids to write about voting or write about how they think about the environment sure. or things like that. And it can also be forums that accompany a a production of a play at a local local theater company. Mm-hmm. It could be an outdoor screenings of documentary films in the summer right. outside yeah, in, New- yeah. in Newport. It could be uh, so there's and it can be history. It can be religious things. One project that we supported was about rituals around death mm. uh, and burial uh, in South County. And so the the content can be extraordinarily various, mm. and it generally falls under the interdisciplinary umbrella of the humanities. Mm. But I think even more important for public humanities is is the method, and that what makes humanities public is the extent to which it increases access by people and communities to the knowledge and engagement with the Mm. humanities, that public humanities creates networks, and increasingly it addresses civic challenges Mm. through culture and dialogue. And it's that recognition that the humanities play that role in our civil society Mm. and that you can actually move the dial on problems and issues that makes, I think, 
humanities public. That's fantastic. I, I wanted to follow up on that and ask you what, because, you know, the first thing that you said, which is a statement that I totally agree with, that like the, the idea, like, hopefully is that we can drop public, because I do think that whether one is writing a, a, a dissertation on serial media, to use myself as an example, selfishly, uh, doing it on um, the Renaissance playwriting, like there, the public is in that. Okay, there, there's always an idea of the public in those things. Like, it doesn't exist without it. And so I guess what I want to ask you is is what, what I suppose, what has been maybe, like, the historical challenge or maybe even just the present challenge of, like, uh, showing that the humanities is already public? Well, I, I think that the idea that the humanities or the, or the accusation mm-hmm. leveled against the humanities, mm. that they are somehow private or mm. insular and, or sealed within the ivory tower, that they have no relationship to general audiences. Mm-hmm. I heard one commentator at a conference recently say that historical scholarship was intellectual hieroglyphics. Mm. And that that was damning and incredibly disheartening yeah. to hear that at a conference that was specifically for public engagement, to hear yeah. that that kind of understanding of what academic scholarship is. But I think that the it implicitly mm. is in saying public humanities is is its opposition, which is yeah. the private humanities and that that seems to be understood as academic humanities. But mm. you're right. A lot of the work that scholars are doing in the humanities is enormously relevant mm. and about people and uh, contributions that have had a huge impact on our worlds. Mm. So it's mm. not it's not that humanities work is somehow not in the public or yeah. about the public. Yeah. I think or for the public. Or for the public, yeah. but one of the things that has been so delightful and revelatory for me in the role of executive director of the Humanities Council is the extent to which the humanities practitioners are everywhere. Mm. That and we call them you know, in a in a in a very affectionate way, citizen humanists or oh, okay. <laughs> citizen scholars, yeah. and that people are creating the humanities all the time. Every mm-hmm. every time somebody, you know, goes to ancestry.com to research their genealogy, any time somebody visits a museum, any time mm-hmm. somebody is interested in uh, seeds that have you know heirloom that are heirloom quality seeds yeah. those those are all expressions of the humanities and it's happening all the time that's fascinating and so yeah. it's it's not just for the people but it's 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 all bubbling up mm. uh, so the humanities are everywhere and i think that another aspect of the public humanities in distinction from things like public history mm-hmm. is that there's less of a sense of delivering the humanities or delivering in a top-down way mm-hmm. what the what the right way is to think about things mm-hmm. uh, but but to ask people to be creative and expressive and interpretive and to encourage that interpretive impulse mm. That's really nice. Uh, this uh, dovetails nicely. How can academic research engage meaningfully uh, or support public humanities initiatives? And I think where, like, the context that's now we're finding this in this conversation is that even within the academy, in the example that you gave, the nice, unfortunate example that you gave, there is this idea that 
the academic humanities is o- is only private and and so then what do we do then to recast the, the the question like if the idea is to i guess if the idea is to move to a place where we view academic research as always involving the public and always invo- involving like a creatively like culture that everybody is involved with then does academic research need to sh- orient itself in a different way or do we need to orient ourselves differently toward academic research hmm. I, I don't think that's the case. Okay. So yeah. I, I believe that knowledge and discovery and the, the mission of mm-hmm. scholarship is essential mm-hmm. and enduring and more important than it's ever been. Mm. At the same time, I think that they're in the, in the push to develop the languages and the vocabulary appropriate to the level of specialization and understanding Mm. that humanities disciplines have achieved, that it's become less, they've become less connected to how people outside of those disciplines think Mm -hmm. and how they talk and how they understand what matters and what's important. Mm. So for the Humanities Council, and the Humanities Councils were founded with this requirement, really, by the National Endowment for the Humanities, that scholarship is essential to public engagement Mm -hmm. and that it was a pathway Mm -hmm. for scholarship to reach communities and to and to reach the everyday lives of people. Mm -hmm. And so every, for example, every Humanities Council grant must have a scholarly component to it. And so that can be including a scholar, an academic, a faculty member in a department at an area university or something like that mm. to be to inform the project, to deepen the understanding of the project, but also to introduce new ways of approaching that project because that's what scholarship does mm-hmm. is it's always in a process of discovery. Yeah, it's always in nice. a process of finding not only what happened but different ways of interpreting it. That is essential to making public work real and innovative mm. and truly engaging. Mm. No, that's a that's a great answer. It actually reminds me of something that uh, Dr. James Golden said in our previous podcast, which was that I loved this phrase that he that he had, which was that for his job at the Mark Twain House, he felt it was um, he said midwifing people from delight to discovery. And I think that I don't know if there's like a if there's like a sub thing for this podcast, maybe it is to, to focus on this idea of discovery in in the public and like like this how. Just that ethic, just like that that idea. I mean, I suppose that could be in. Mm-hmm. Uh, in it doesn't that that certainly does not have to just be in the academy, and it isn't. But, mm-hmm. but that's an idea that um, I think is best understood through some of the. Um, in, I don't know, in, interpretive abilities that, that uh, like I think PhD students have. Like, I mean, the, and no matter what PhD you get in the humanities, that is a research degree. That means you are a specialist in discovery, and that. Those are the skills that are, I don't know, I think very useful, which is, right. which is what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. I think that one of the that is fundamental to what academic scholarly work is, is that it's a contribution mm-hmm, mm-hmm. to what we know mm-hmm. about about the world. And that definition, of course, is what counts as a contribution mm-hmm. has changed. I think when when mm-hmm. I was in graduate school, one of the one of the anxieties was that historians were no longer going into the archive okay. and that it was possible to 
do historical work without ever setting foot into the archive. That's interesting. And that's ever setting foot in history. <laughs> well, I mean, so the to the extent that history became more an act of interpretation mm-hmm. and re-narrativization, yes. it is possible, mm-hmm. uh, and it is possible to do something significant. But mm-hmm. certainly, there there is so much that we need to be discovering mm-hmm. and that the humanities need to be part of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's a distinction I think that often gets lost when we focus, when when there is so much focus on STEM fields that sure. the STEM fields somehow are the arenas in which discovery is taking place sure. and that, that that is not, you mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. that is not the case. And that is certainly the approach that to the public humanities that I find really powerful is mm-hmm. that is this process of discovery because that's how people feel truly connected to their communities, mm. not by affirming what they already know, yeah. but encountering what they don't know. To follow up, mm-hmm. um, and I think this is a good area to get into this. Like, so how does your? I know this because obviously we talked beforehand because this isn't happening live. So your scholarship on women's history and cultural studies, uh, how does that guide your role now in the Rhode Island uh, Humanities Council? Uh, even like I think thinking about the statement you just made about this idea of not going back uh, that that was a, that started to to come up when when you were pursuing your degree. Like, so mm-hmm. how does that inform your work uh, today? Yeah. So it's been a a, a journey for mm. for me from being immersed in doing my PhD mm-hmm. to the role that I have now as director of the Humanities Council, mm-hmm. and it's taken its twists and turns. But I don't think it's that atypical for someone who has decided not to pursue a career in the academy per se. Mm-hmm. But I didn't expect to find resonances mm-hmm. with my scholarly work my book you know how does that have any relevance to mm. what i do as the director of a an organization that is devoted to enabling communities to have access to mm-hmm. humanities very very broadly conceived. But I be, I've begun to really see those connections more and more, like really not just about, oh, it was important for me to gain those skills in terms of research and writing mm-hmm. and the kind of patience and dedication that you have to have in order to really complete a project at the scale of a dissertation. Mm-hmm. All of those things are important. All of those skills are important, but I began to think about what I was writing about, Mm -hmm. what I was researching, and why did it matter to me so much. Mm -hmm. And one of the aspects of women's history that I was very, very drawn to was not just about learning about the significance of what women were doing that had been excluded or lost or suppressed as part of the creation of a national narrative but that women's history was not just about those stories of women's lives, but it was a, its intervention into what mm-hmm. history meant. Mm. And it was about changing the paradigm of, of what counted as um, historical worthiness mm-hmm. and the way that it changed the narrative. It mm. changed the narrative of the United States mm. or it changed the narrative of wherever you're locating mm-hmm. women's history. And that's what I 
have been thinking more and more about as the the thing that I connect to now is that I find public humanities work to be a really important way of changing the narrative mm-hmm. of of seeing that it's possible that things don't have to be the way they are. Sure. So that's that's a yeah that's an aspect of what I've been thinking about. And then yeah. some of the people that I actually wrote about, I now see as essentially public humanists. Mm. Uh, can you give an example? So one of the people that I talk about is uh, that I wrote about was Isadora Duncan, okay. oh. who was one of the founders of modern dance and mm-hmm. was a very iconoclastic person okay. and had a lot of ideas and a lot of ambitions and was always connecting her artistic practice to her ambitions for social transformation. Mm. And one of the projects that she wanted to do was to take the armory in lower Manhattan Mm -hmm. and to make it, to transform it into a dance school uh, that would be, you know, the location for, you know, her life's work. Mm -hmm. And I just thought, you know, that's exactly what's going on now is that people are adapting and reusing buildings to make them into animated spaces for Mm -hmm for culture yeah. and the, and for the communities around them more alive and vital and i mm. thought and i and i just thought you know this this impulse to placemaking has mm. been hap- and that was you know in 19 i guess 1915 or so that mm-hmm. she she was trying to do that and you know this has been going on you know in terms of transformations of cities for a really long time yeah what i'd like to know is the connection that you have with uh, your work and uh, and where you live, like like, can you tell me about the connection with uh, with Rhode Island or the connection with Providence and and some of what you're seeing and what you see as like larger public humanities uh, thought and 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 I don't know trends that can that we can view mm-hmm. in issues that you are seeing in, in you know in mm-hmm. the world outside your window, literally. Right. So I. I think that what the turn towards public humanities mm-hmm. in in engaged scholarship mm-hmm. is encouraging scholars to be more connected to, embedded in the communities they where they actually are, right. not just on the the campuses where their institutions are located, mm-hmm. but in those communities. Mm-hmm. And that has been the case for many universities who, because they have needed to mm-hmm. have created you know much stronger connections to the communities surrounding them mm-hmm. and to you know for good and ill you know okay. that sometimes that has worked really well and sometimes it hasn't mm-hmm. but it's always a work in progress you think about Baltimore mm-hmm. um, sure. you know or think about Philadelphia and the mm-hmm. role of Penn and or mm-hmm. you know Baltimore and the role of Johns Hopkins mm-hmm. but the those relationships are really important and I think that scholarship and and humanities scholars can actually play a really important role mm-hmm. in in creating stronger community connections and and getting involved in the issues that communities face. Okay. And that has a, a really long history. In yeah. Providence, where the Humanities Council is located and where I've lived for a long time now, mm-hmm. is a city that has gone through a really significant transformation over the past 30 years. It has gone from being a city that was a downtown that was almost completely abandoned mm-hmm in the wake of 
economic downturns and how companies and industries left the state, mm-hmm. you know, to mm-hmm. uh, to go overseas or with the decline of those industries in and of themselves, mm-hmm. uh, where to the point where, you know, people used to just throw rocks into windows with impunity. Right, right. And now through arts and culture organizations mm-hmm. in connection with development and also with pre- preservation have actually propelled a renaissance for the city mm-hmm. and there are so when you know when you go down when you go to the corner of empire and washington street in providence mm-hmm. now you're having a really different experience mm-hmm. than you would have had 30 years ago yeah, yeah. and you know that's a really interesting story to tell yeah. and i public humanities work has been has been really important to that that transformation that's often less well understood. For example, one of the first grants that the Humanities Council made in its early, early years in the in the mid seventies was to support the work of an architect who was really interested in possibilities for Providence as a walking city. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. through that, through his uh, his inquiry, really became fascinated with the idea of uncovering the rivers. So mm. right now you see the river yeah. and the river walk and the river yeah. is a, a pretty central feature of your experience of of Providence, but there was a whole period where the river was covered over. Really? So that initial inquiry and imagination of mm. what that was called interface providence, that mm. imagination of what providence could be that was partially funded through the humanities council ends up being something that informs the vision of an artist like Barnaby Evans who mm-hmm. convinces the city that an artistic installation is going to animate this in, in, this amazing reconstitution of the rivers that the city had accomplished. And so now that's a signature aspect of what it means to be in Providence mm-hmm. is this, you know, is this is the fires being lit on the yeah, river, yeah, and so fire. yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. so that that's that's one example mm-hmm. of how important humanities research, humanities creativity has been to to how we live. Mm. Yeah, yeah, literally in this area, mm-hmm. and you don't get that information on Crime Town. So I want to. <laughs> Uh, go to my next question is that um, so what kind of paths do you envision uh, for preparing English doctoral students for public humanities work you mean if I were queen of the humanities you, world yeah if you were queen of the humanities you, you well so I was trained in an interdisciplinary field mm-hmm. and I consciously went in that in that direction because that's how I think and that's what inspires me but I quickly realized that interdisciplinarity mm. was still somehow seen as novel or mm. or as uncategorizable but i believe mm-hmm. that humanities work needs to be fundamentally interdisciplinary okay. that there has been i once heard a talk by a researcher about the knowledge specialization mm-hmm and the trend towards specialization. And that can be measured in lots of different ways, but it's often measured by papers and scholarly journals. Mm -hmm. And looking at the trend line for Mm. specialization and that it becomes unsustainable at a certain point and that it will inevitably 
turn towards generalization. Mm -hmm. And I think that might be one of the big challenges for humanities mm. scholarship right now mm. is how to make that turn, mm -hmm. but to take the insights mm. and the the rigor mm. that came with the push towards specialization sure. into public contexts. Mm. And so interdisciplinarity, I think, is really essential. Mm. And then mm. I also believe that I believe that humanities work has its its own qualities mm -hmm. and its own imperative, mm -hmm. but that in connection with other fields is where we're going to find more powerful avenues for addressing the challenges that we face in the world. I think mm -hmm. that there's been a lot of amazing work that identifies the challenges that mm -hmm. we face mm -hmm. and identifies the contradictions, Yeah, but it's now time to actually confront those yeah the, and to and to move things forward mm -hmm. and we recognize that every time we open our new york times app yeah of course and that and the promises that we made after the women's march mm -hmm. to be more community connected but i truly i i i truly think that scholarship has a an important role mm. to play in addressing grand challenges. But that is in partnership and in in deep connection to what's happening in the sciences, what's happening in fields of um, design and innovation, mm. and that the humanities and there's a lot of attention paid and it's and it's glamorous and romantic to talk about design thinking. Mm. But the humanities are essentially a design field because they're always shaping the approach to problems mm. and new ways of approaching problems. And we distance ourselves from those things, you know, at our at our peril, mm. you know. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So that's really, really well put. I think that's excellent. I so it's to to put it to put it in a sentence perhaps, uh what humanities uh PhDs or or in uh, involved in the public need to do is we need to move beyond like uh, showing what something is and and does and maybe showing what we can do. Is that like, is that fair mm -hmm. to say? Yeah. Yeah. And how the humanities become a method mm -hmm. for creating those pathways. Mm -hmm. And there is an increasing understanding that process is an outcome, mm. that the approach to a problem, the way that we gain consensus mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> about, about what a problem is mm -hmm. and is is essentially a facilitative process mm -hmm. and that that solutions aren't going to be found if the process doesn't actually create the path towards them mm. and so that i think is a really important humanities contribution mm. and that engagement an interpretation engagement with an interpretation of differences mm. and and how how we understand them mm -hmm. is a, you know just a really important aspect of what the humanities contribute and i oh. i i just want to say you know there's a sure. there's another aspect of you know that i would really advocate for in mm. terms of humanities training and i and i've learned i think that uri is 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 piloting a really important way of approaching this, which is that scholarship, the nuts and bolts of it, mm -hmm. being able to write well, 
being able to research, being able to ask questions, being able to make connections, all of those things are very important. Being able to frame a problem, being able to establish scope and Mm -hmm. interpret examples in relation to that. All of those things are really important aspects of of academic scholarship. But I also think that there could be a field of inquiry Mm -hmm. that is around the ways of delivering and expressing scholarship that we have found these very circumscribed ways Mm -hmm. of presenting research and interpretation. And How do you mean? Could you make that a little more concrete? Well, we, we, we do that in terms of conference papers. Okay, great, yeah. And we do that in terms of books, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. articles, mm-hmm. and that they have conventions. Yeah. They have conventions and they have genres. And, and we learn very well mm. how to perform in those genres. Mm-hmm. And I think that there are lots of ways yeah. and vehicles to deliver scholarship Mm -hmm. and animate it and connect it. And it's not just about taking it and translating it into another context. I Mm -hmm. think that that needs to start happening at the very inception of how how we define an inquiry. Mm -hmm. And we've developed a kind of lingo for that that comes from Tom Scheinfeld at the University of Connecticut, Mm -hmm. who is started out as a digital humanities scholar and Mm -hmm. now is is just really it's no longer digital. Mm-hmm. It's it's the way that he thinks about the humanities. Yeah. And that is this idea of collaboration first. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that by thinking in concert with lots of people in lots of different, with lots of different kinds of expertise and lots of different ways of approaching things with different languages for mm-hmm. how they understand what they're doing, because disciplines are about the languages Mm. that something different is going to emerge Mm. Uh, and uh, so that's not just simply an act of application Mm -hmm. it's an act of constituting something in a really different way I think that there can be I think that that could be a really important approach to advanced training in the humanities Mm. yeah how did you come to be the director at the uh, Rhode Island Council for the Humanities well it's a it was a it was a journey, um, like I said before, and I had been working at Brown University not in an academic position, but working with faculty members on grants mm-hmm. that for their research and for teaching and for new uh, new initiatives, things like that. Mm-hmm. And it was at the height of the recession, mm-hmm. and. I was working with a lot of public health faculty who were doing really interesting things in the community mm-hmm. and also globally. Mm. And I was very impressed and inspired by mm. how they were doing their work and how they connected their sense of mission as scholars to what they saw as the problems that they could actually helped to solve. Mm -hmm. And I thought, I mean, and of course, this, we needed to do this. We always need to do this. Mm -hmm. But during the recession, this became, I think, acute. Mm. And I started to ask myself, why aren't the humanities faculty that I'm working with doing this too? Mm -hmm. What is the limit here? Mm -hmm. 
why is there such a difference? And I was talking to a friend of mine who was at that time the executive director of the Council for the Humanities. And she said, you should be on the board (laughs) of the Humanities Council. Mm -hmm. And I was um, honored to be asked to be on the board of the Humanities Council. And then she decided to leave her position as executive director. And I was encouraged to think about it Mm. as a potential step. And then I really seriously took a really deep dive into what that what that would mean and what I would do Mm. and what my approach would be and I I did I did decide to apply and Mm. was was, became the executive director yeah what was the most immediate um I guess uh change for you because you were you were going from you were I was the director of corporate and foundation relations at, at uh Brown University okay so yeah, so what was the like the biggest change that you noticed moving from that particular position uh, at Brown, a private mm-hmm. institution, to uh, this? Yeah, yeah, public humanities. I, I think it was scale. So mm-hmm. it was okay. so going from a very complex institution, yeah, in which there are a lot of moving parts and you have limited agency, mm-hmm. to a, a a small organization where there was a lot of room to do things. Mm. There, there was the ability to be nimble, as they say, mm-hmm. was m- much more possible mm. that at the Humanities Council. And it took me a while to realize that I didn't have to propose something, that mm-hmm. I didn't have to make the case for it. I didn't have to, you know, ask. All the time, I could just do it. Mm. Your language became performative. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, did you want uh, a tenure track faculty job, or was it always your idea to be um, outside of the academy in this in this way? No, I wanted a tenure track faculty position, okay. and I I went into graduate school with that expectation. Mm-hmm. I I was following, I I would say, a fairly conventional academic path where Mm. I was, I completed my degree, I I wrote my book out of my dissertation, I published my book, I was, you know, publishing articles and and things like that, and I was uh, working as, I I was teaching part-time as an adjunct at the University of Rhode Island right. in the history department and shout out to the University I, of Rhode Island history department. Yes, <laughs> and also and prior to that had had a visiting position at Brown in women's studies mm. and American studies. And all of that was delightful except that I had a child mm. and I got divorced. Mm. And it was no longer possible to sustain myself in any reasonable way mm-hmm. teaching on an adjunct basis sure. and also divorce is one of those things that keeps you in a place mm-hmm. so when especially when you have a child so mm-hmm. i had to stay yeah 
I mean, it's not that I couldn't have left, sure. but I, you know, essentially I was anchored here. Mm-hmm. And so that limit that limited the the opportunities substantially. Mm-hmm. And while I had been on the job market for several years, I I didn't think that I couldn't get a job, mm-hmm. but I also became less compelled by by that, gotcha. especially as I discovered that there were other things to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So one of the things that happened, actually, I think, was that I, in supporting myself, I worked at a startup who that was mm. developing digital history resources, oh, digital history textbook, and then these flash, interactive flash products that mm-hmm. were about historical engagement you know, through specific examples. And it was a really interesting company. And mm-hmm. the the work that I was doing, I found really compelling. Mm. And it was unstable because it was a startup. Sure. And it was when the internet bubble, the first internet bubble burst. Mm-hmm. And, but it was really exciting. And there's something mm. about working in a corporate context, the pace mm. and the startup context that was, I was always on the the edge of my seat. Oh, that's interesting. And, yeah. and, that, and that really worked for you. Uh, well, yeah. I found it really interesting. Yeah. And so it it made it possible for me to think about things in different ways. Mm. And then and then the, discovering the work at Brown in corporate and foundation relations and the whole field of corporate and foundation relations is all about articulating the mission of academic work in a broader context. Mm-hmm. And also encouraging because foundation grants are always about uh, pushing the edges of innovation and also about impact, that it was always asking faculty members to think about what they were doing in a larger context, why it mattered, and what it would accomplish. Mm. And so that helped me to think about academic work in a different way, too. Tell me about the superpower of podcasting, Elizabeth. <laughs> well, we did a project last year that who's who's we is the Rhode Island Council? Oh, I'm sorry. The Rhode yeah, Island okay. Council for the Humanities yeah. had the opportunity to work with the larger network of humanities councils uh, and uh, the Pulitzer Foundation mm. uh, as well as the Mellon Foundation to celebrate the 100th anniversary of the Pulitzer Prizes, mm. and we did a uh, a really interesting program. But the challenge was. Not simply could could we do some interesting ways to celebrate the 100th anniversary of the Pulitzer Prizes, but how are we going to document it? Okay. And how are we going to identify the Humanities Council with this, this, this variety of initiatives around this mm-hmm. that had, you know, pretty disparate qualities? And so we thought we had, we were all listening to podcasts and had all become obsessed with different podcasts. We said, well, let's do a podcast. Yeah. And so we did we did with every uh, after every program, we did a podcast with the one of the principal people involved oh, with that program. And I was playing your role. Oh, okay. And I was the, <laughs> I was the uh, interviewer mm. and I found it really wonderful mm. to not simply ask the questions, mm-hmm. but to engage further with the questions. And I think that there is something really interesting about the podcast genre yeah. because 
it allows for more play and mm. that there is not direct lines of authority. Yeah. And I agree with that. that there there's there's flexibility there. And I think that I think that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Podcast for the future. Yeah. <laughs> excellent. Uh, that is, I think, a good enough note to end on. Um, and thank you so much, Elizabeth. This was wonderful. Uh, as you were saying, uh, enjoying the space of the interviewer to have a conversation. Uh, I have greatly enjoyed this time. Uh, I have too. Thank you so much, um, Ryan. And I'm 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 really pleased to be part of this podcast series. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Careers in the Public Humanities. We'll be back in the spring semester with interviews with Dr. Paul Erickson, Program Director for the Humanities, Arts, and Culture in American Institutions, Society, and the Public Good at American Academy of Arts and Sciences, and Dr. Kenna Barrett, Director of Development of Advanced International Studies at Johns Hopkins University. We hope to see you in the spring. Feel free to subscribe to our podcast at web.uri.edu slash nextgen.phd. Or find us on iTunes. Look for Careers in the Public Humanities. This podcast has been produced by Rachel Basio in conjunction with the University of Rhode Island English Department. Introduction and editing by Catherine Winters and Ryan Angley with music by Mark Settle.